hello, everybody. Welcome to the weekly show this week. Our discussion, as you see up here right in the corner, uh, we're going to be talking about a fun book, a book that just came out two days ago by uh, one of my former professors, Dr. Clay Jones, wrote the book Immortal, How the Fear of Death Drives Us and What We Can Do About It. And so we're going to be having this conversation about uh, people trying to live forever or ways in which we try to live to be stronger and live longer and all that kind of fun stuff. And so uh, so joining me to have this conversation is the author of this book, Dr. Clay Jones. Thank you for coming on. My pleasure. My pleasure, Ryan. Glad to be with you. Absolutely. And for those of you who don't know who Dr. Clay Jones is, he is an associate professor of Christian apologetics at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. And he also formerly uh, co-hosted uh, a um, or hosted a, a national radio show, Contend for Truth, where he answered questions and did all that kind of fun stuff, as well as he is a um, contributing arth, uh, author to the Christian Research Journal. He is a on the chairman of the board of directors for Ratio Christi, which is a college apologetics uh, ministry. And then uh, this is now his third time on the show. Uh, the first time he came on, we discussed his first book, Why Does God Allow Evil? That came out back in 2017. Great, great resource for answering the questions on evil. He came on just a few months ago, maybe last year, I think, uh, to discuss the, the killing of the Canaanites, right? Is this genocide? Is this judgment? So we had a conversation on the God of the Old Testament. You might want to go check that out as well. But now the new book <clears throat> is Immortal, How the Fear of Death Drives Us and What We Can Do About It. All right, so jumping in, tell us a little bit more about yourself. I, I just kind of, you know, gave that introduction of what you've done, but you have found yourself kind of in this area of study on why God allows evil and death. Uh, can you give a quick little introduction to how you found yourself studying and researching these topics? Well, and uh, I was a young pastor, and this is going to date me, in 1981 or two, I, I was a pastor, and I, I started learning about the glory that awaits us in heaven forever. Uh, and it was just so revelatory to me who we are in Jesus and the wonder that he's got in store for us was really a revelation to me. And so I, I began, those that knew me back then, and actually, by the way, Craig Hazen did know me back then, but, uh, you know, I mean, that's my favorite topic to teach on. Uh, and after I studied that for quite a long time, the glory that awaits us in heaven forever, I switched over to study and I thought, well, I know where we're going. Where did we come from? And so I started studying human evil and the depths of human sinfulness. And I spent a lot of years studying genocide and mass murder and realized that it's the genocide and mass murder is what the average, average ordinary human does. In other words, there's surely there's sadists and stuff, but, but not for the most part, it's ordinary people. The understanding of those two things made me realize uh, something extremely important. And that was uh, that the universe, frankly, made sense to me, and I know this surprises people, but I've been saying this for many years now, uh, the problem of evil basically went away. That doesn't mean I didn't have a lot more things to learn, a lot more things to study, but the problem of evil went away, and I just then thought, you know, I've got to really dedicate my life to this subject, and and uh, <clears throat> and so I did, and and here here I am. Yeah, and so you kind of talk about that idea here at the beginning of your book on uh, where you're laying in bed one night, right? And this kind of the the fear of death. And, and so what right. was it? I mean, and I know that we're going to get into this, but you know, this is kind of what led to you writing this book. So why was it, I guess, that you have written this new book on the fear of death? Well, I I was reading a, a, a book by a Paris philosopher named Luke Ferry, and Ferry said uh, that the philosophy is about learning to conquer death. It's about learning to have a sort of secular salvation without there being a God. And when I read that, I, my mind was blown, really. I, I, I'd gotten a BA in philosophy, and I'd never heard that. Nobody had ever mentioned that, that philosophy was largely about that. Uh, so I started looking to see, you know, Ferry, Ferry mentioned a lot of people. I started studying them. And like, for instance, Plato says, uh, the practice, the study of philosophy a right is to practice uh, death, uh, that we learn to deal with death. Uh, so I found that Plato said that. And, you know, Michel de Montaigne wrote a book on the fear of death and how we don't need to fear death. That's what Epicurus's entire philosophy was about, how we don't need to fear death. Uh, sure, and certainly Arthur Schopenhauer believed that. And so many others have said, sure, philosophy is about conquering your death fears. And when I read that, I thought, man, I'm in. I've, I've got to really spend some time getting to in on this doctrine. 
And so I started reading what all the philosophers said about it. And then I started listening to Sam Harris and reading and listening to Bart Ehrman and listening to all the new atheists and what they had to say about it. And then I was just thought, well, how do psychologists, sociologists, anthropologists and so on deal with it? And very soon I thought, man, this is the book for me. I mean, probably within a week or two, I thought, if that, uh, I thought there's a book here. You know, I mean, I need to write on how people handle death and examine it and the answer is not very well but they sure do try and I mean, <clears throat> would you say then like how many people actually fear death is this a normal thing for people to fear death everybody fears death except those who have a robust view of eternal life in jesus everyone else fears death uh the scripture says in hebrews chapter 2 14 uh that jesus came to free those who all their lives were held in bondage by a lifelong fear of death and so in other words scripture says that people that everybody fears death but jesus came to free them so if you come to jesus and have a robust view of eternal life in jesus you don't have to fear death everybody else fears death and the interesting thing, though, is I was reading sociologists and psychologists, like I say, philosophers and whatnot. Most of them say straight out, yeah, this is what drives people. I mean, that everyone fears death. But if you ask people, if you say, well, do you fear death? Very often they say, no, no, I don't. No, I don't fear death. Yeah, that was and my next I, point, because a lot of people go, no, I don't fear death. Yeah. You know, and, and as I write in the book, I say, and they're not entirely dishonest. I mean, they, because they don't think about their deaths. They don't think about their deaths at all. Not at all. Well, sure, they will acknowledge abstractly that they're <laughs> going to die, but <clears throat> they don't. But it, it's only until they find a lump in a place that wasn't there before, or they get have a chest pain, or they get a positive back on a blood test, then if they find out how much they really fear death. Uh, because the truth of the matter is they really fear death. People fear it very, very much. In fact, uh, the three psychologists, psychology professors that I quote a lot in my book, Immortal, uh, said that uh, if humans were could not shake their, their the idea that they were going to die, if they were just had to starkly confront the fact that they were going to die, they'd just be quivering blobs of protoplasm, unable to function in, to, in society. And I think that's largely true. I think that if you really look at it, and so Ryan, I, I come to the conclusion that every single person on earth is lying to themselves, except for Christians, every single person on earth is lying to themselves specifically about death. Uh, they're having to tell themselves lies about the nature of reality. So, yeah, everybody's uh, terrified by death. It's always there, even when it's out of their mind. It's there scratching, as a uh, psychiatry professor of Stanford, Irving Yalom put it, it's always scratching at some inner door of the mind. It's never, it never leaves you. Yeah. You know, it, but it's, it sounds interesting is that, you know, I, I, I hear people saying, well, man, that sure sounds easy for you to say like, hey, everyone fears death, but the Christian doesn't, right? But we are going to get into the show on why having that robust view of heaven actually does take away that fear of death. And, and I think that you're right because, you know, people, again, will acknowledge that they die. There's the question of what do you think happens when you die that gets people to kind of think about those big questions. But for the most part, they don't think about it. And I think that's why sometimes, you know, near-death experiences sometimes freak people out so much right. is that death finally it confronts them and that and they don't know what to, they right. don't know how to handle it it julia julia i quote this in the book julia louis dreyfus the star of seinfeld and then veep uh after she won an emmy for best actress uh the next morning she was called by her doctor and told that she had breast cancer and she said that turned into hysterical crying and she goes on and she says you know we don't think about death i mean ever hardly ever uh, she says, but now once something like this has happened to you, it's very hard. It's always there. It's hard to shake it. But for most people, they just, they, they've, like I say, they've told themselves lies about how it's going to be fine or okay, or how, you know, a lot of people are employing, and we'll talk about this, but different kinds of things to, to, to help them deal with the fact that they're going to die. But everybody's desperately afraid of death. Even most Christians, that my experience is fear death because they do not have a robust understanding of or appreciation of eternal life in Jesus. They don't. Now, would you say that this is partially maybe a reason why a lot of people, when having kind of these crazy near-death experiences uh, in their life, that it does produce dramatic change and maybe the way that they're yeah. living and, and what they believe? And, and because th that's maybe the first time they've actually confronted they're going to die and then they turn to God right. or they turn to church. You know, is that really right? That maybe that's the first time? 
Uh, well, yeah, I think for a lot of them, because that's their first, I mean, what led to the near-death experience was the fact that they were nearly dead. <laughs> they almost died. And that's frightening to them to think, oh my, this is real. A lot of people come out comforted. And that's, you know, sometimes I don't think they should be because they come out comforted and just go, ah, oh, there's a God of love out there. And without identifying that God of love as Jesus, there's just, but there's this God of love out there. Well, uh, that's a little bit, uh, that's that's the wrong message. I think we do need to separate, though. There's a difference between being near dead and dead dead. Uh, and so we just have to be a little bit careful here because it says in Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed a man wants to die and then comes the judgment. And so what we learn from near-death experiences, they're not as, we, we shouldn't say, yeah, this is gospel. I think it does definitely prove, though, that our consciousness don't cease upon our death, uh, upon our brain flatlining or our heart flatlining, that our consciousness doesn't cease. I think you can at least draw that conclusion. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting. Just uh, the other day, I'm, uh, I mean, I, guess I, I keep saying the other day because it doesn't seem like that long ago. But before all this quarantine stuff, I was umpiring baseball and my partner comes up to me during the game and just says, hey, you're a you know, religious guy because we were talking. He asked me what I do. And he's like, you know, do you think there's an afterlife? Right. And th this sometimes is the question that people have on their minds. But as you've mentioned a few times and we'll get to, not everyone has a correct view of heaven. And, you know, this you know, reminds me of just this week. I finished my chapter on the biblical meta narrative with my doctrine students and finished a, you know of the the redemption completed and the consummation of God's kingdom and it kind of goes into this idea of you know what do you think about heaven you know are we turn into angels with little flightless wings and sit on clouds and play harps and just sing worship songs every day and you've written an article and I'll post this below it's not there now but you've written an article on why I look forward to eternity and it was right. me. I took that article with your permission and, and and posted a major section of it in an own blog that I had that said will heaven be boring and that was the most viewed blog that I've ever written. Really? Is Will Heaven Be wow. Boring? And at least at the time, the last time I checked, which is a while ago, but um, but it's taken this idea of like why you look forward to eternity and, and that this robust view of what is awaiting us and the glory that awaits us in heaven is so valuable. And so we're definitely going to talk about that at the end of today. And so, you know, the, the, the subtitle <clears throat> of your book is How the Fear of Death Drives Us. And so what do you mean that the fear of death drives people? I mean, and, and actually, like I say, sociologists, anthropologists, philosophers, they, they, you'd be surprised in the literature how much they agree about this. But, but people, they, people are driven by their fear of death. Like I say, they may not be conscious of it because they're denying it and they're suppressing it and whatnot, uh, distracting themselves from it. But it drives them <clears throat> to find some way to transcend their deaths. And so, of course, there's some people are literally trying to live forever. And I suppose we'll probably want to talk more about that in a minute. A lot of people, let me just try to scratch it. A lot of people are trying to live, literally live forever, literally uh, eat the right foods, diet and exercise, or at least if not forever, at least as long as possible with the hope that one day science is going to find a cure for everything that might kill me. And an awful lot of people are trying to do that. Other people are trying to transcend their fear of death through doing what I what I didn't make this up. Actually, I think it was Ernest Becker called symbolic immortality projects, where they're trying to create things where they think they'll transcend their death through things that they've accomplished here on on Earth. Uh, for instance, um, having children or um, you know saving the planet is a symbolic immortality project. Of course, writing a book. Uh, you know, how many people can I influence? Becoming a celebrity is a symbolic immortality project. Just trying to somehow get noticed yeah. is, uh, and, and so people are trying to transcend their deaths with these two kinds of things. And I think every single person that has any kind of normal co cogniz cognizance uh, is trying to transcend their death in some way. Uh, and so uh, I, I just can't, you know, I mean, and, and all of these projects that I mentioned are an attempt to do that. Uh, how many hot dogs you can eat in, you know, 20 minutes? Uh, you know, I mean, the Guinness Book of World Records is full of people that are trying to transcend their death symbolically. Yeah. So when we... <clears throat> So, okay, so you, you brought up this idea of these immortality projects. And so that you have in your book that both what's called, you know, the literal mortality, immortality project, and then the, uh, the symbolic immortality project. So you just kind of gave the example there. Symbolic is, I'm going to live on through my children. Uh, you know, you right. have a funny comment about this too, of like, how many of you know your great, great, great grandparent? Right. And when yeah, you, the first name. How many of you know the first name? In fact, you don't even have to go that back that far. How many of you know the great the name first names of your great great grandparents? 
I think I've never had more, I mean, total, total. I don't think I've ever had more than two or three people raise their hands and say that they actually knew the name of their great, great, first names of their great, great grandparents. Only two or three people. And then I, I love the follow-up <laughs> yeah. question. I say the, and you know it, the follow-up yeah. question is, do you care? Nobody cares. Uh, that's the amazing thing. No one cares. Uh, one, one young woman whom you know, I won't mention her name on uh, here, but uh, one young woman put it, well, I'm glad they got together. <laughs> I, and I sure get that. Yeah, I'm glad they got together. But uh, they, don't, they don't care what their first names are. And also, genetically speaking, in 20 generations, I, I did the math. Uh, it's point and there's five zeros, point five zeros, and then some numbers, which I don't remember exactly of how much of your genes are going to be in your descendants after 20 generations. But it even gets worse than that. There might not be any of your genes in 20 generations because genes, there's dominant and recessive genes and yours might just by the 19th generation have been recessive and they're just completely gone that you're literally not in your descendants at all after a certain point uh so you're not going to live on through your children but that's but that's the biggest immortality problem project uh plato said it was einstein said that this is how we, we live on through our children um uh you know i mean psychologists are going are, are bantering bantering this around lots of people are doing this that, that you live on through your children it kind of makes sense people have that expectation but you're really not yeah. And I mean, so then there's other ways. So you live on through your children, you you become a celebrity, right? You become famous. Um, you you get your name put on a building. Right. And then, you know, I think of like, I, I lived in Huggins Hall when I was a freshman in college. I don't care. I, I don't know who Huggins is. Like the fact that someone was did something to get their name put on the dorm that I lived in. Like that's sometimes this people like I, I got my name on a hall. There we go. Right. People will remember right. me. And so That's we're going right. to get to kind of the implications of these as well. But you also talk about literal immortality projects. Uh, so what would be a literal immortality project? Well, I mean, people are really trying to diet and exercise as, I, you know, as this one uh, – this one young woman put in like New York or something like that. She says, you know, the fear of death is enough to make us get up and on a Monday morning and get on a treadmill at 6 a.m. Uh, it's enough for us to sh force kale down our throats. And it's enough for us to show our genitals to a stranger who's wearing white gloves and a white coat if we fa feel something's a little off. I mean, something we feel like something's wrong. Oh, my God, I've got to fix this. I've got to get this fixed right now. Uh, because but see, it's until something you think something's a little wrong is like, no, no, I'm fine. I don't care. But there people are trying, you know, Whole Foods markets is full of people literally trying to live forever, at least hoping to. But that's a that's not that's not going to happen. It cannot happen. Uh, you know, I mean, it, as you know, Ryan, I in the book, I, I point out a, a demographer. This is not a this is not an estimate. This is actually a calculation that he did. And you can see it. Find his article. Uh, a demographer named Nathan Kiefitz from Harvard calculated that if we were able to cure every form of cancer, all of them, where there's not one form of cancer left that people would only live 2.265 years longer but and, and people are shocked I, when I, I people are shocked at that because they think man if it cured cancer man we'd live to, uh, to 120 or 30 or 50 you know you'd live to like 80 81 <laughs> until you died of something else <laughs> yeah you're not going to live forever there's no way out that's not going to happen so then where would you draw the line because just yesterday i jumped on my bicycle <clears throat> and i read rode 46 miles through two different mountain passes and killed myself uh so where would you you know so you talk about this idea that sometimes it's a fear of death that drives people to wake up at 6 a.m and run on a treadmill uh but then there is the enjoyment of riding a bicycle but then also wanting to be in shape so there's you know, there's eating healthy and hey, I can live longer to this is now becoming an immortality project that I'm trying to live longer. Where would you draw that well, line? Sure. I, I, you know, I mean, I think people should work out. I always like to kid my classes. You've probably heard me by going, you know, I work out and then I'll go, hey, I know you're going, oh, Clay, that's so obvious. Come on. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, Gene and I exercise daily uh, because we want to be in as good a health as we can until the day comes that we do die. We want to be in good health. Uh, we like to walk. Uh, and Gene has got a Fitbit and is addicted to it. And if we, we, if we don't do 6,000 steps a day, there's something really wrong. 
and uh, he will then get me up and say, we've got to keep walking to get our 6,000 steps in today. Uh, but there's nothing wrong with that. I just, I think you need to analyze your motives and say, you know, think it through. Am I really, what, what am I doing? Because if you're trying to live, well, you know, the, 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 the founder or excuse me, the first president of Facebook, Sean Parker uh, said, because I'm a billionaire, I'm going to have access to better health care. And he says, so I'm probably going to live to 160 and then just join that class of immortal overlords. See, he's hoping to. The founder of Bullet Coffee, and I document this, the founder like, of Bullet I Coffee. I shared this story with all my students. Oh, did you? Yeah. The Bullet Coffee one? Yeah, it's crazy. Oh, really? It's crazy. Well, yeah, what he does to his body. Yeah is incredible. It's crazy. But I mean, see, people are hoping, like I say, and what they're hoping is, is that I'll live to a certain age. And then if I, if I make it to, let's say 80, uh, and I'm only 50 and I make it to 80, then science is going to be able to cure anything that would kill me by then. That's eh, not going to happen. I'm yeah. sorry. I hate to break the news to you, but life expectancy, by the way, is not increasing very much at all. Now at the turn of the uh, 20th century, the average life expectancy, it's true, was only 49 years old. Now it's about 78 years old. That's true. But that's not because people are living much longer. It's because infant mortality has gone down dramatically uh, because of the use of antibiotics. Otherwise, children were dying like crazy, and that skewed the age. How long people are living, I mean, once they got past childhood, uh, now uh, you're talking about maybe a year. Hmm. Uh, so you're not, you know, the idea, Hey, we're all living 50 years longer than they used to. No, we're not. Yeah. It's not true. Yeah. And I want to share this example for, for everyone listening here, cause we brought it up. Uh, this is the founder of bulletproof coffee, which I've never even heard of bulletproof coffee, but I guess it's big enough to make him a lot of money. Uh, but he said that he's on a quest to live to 180 years old. And it says here uh, to accomplish this, he has bone marrow extracted from his hips and then has the stem cells filtered out and injected into every joint of his body, his spinal cord and his cerebral fluid. He intends to do this twice a year. He also takes a hundred supplements a day, religiously follows a low carb diet, high, low carb, high fat diet, bathes in infrared light, chills in a cryotherapy chamber and relaxes in a hyperbaric oxygen chamber. <laughs> I don't even know what it means to bathe in infrared light. <laughs> no kidding. But you notice though, see, there's an example of a guy that's really afraid to die. Yeah. I mean, he's really afraid to die. I mean, that he's going through all of these steps. He's death terrifies him. Uh, and, uh, you know, as you know, Ryan, I, I quote a lot of the, how the, a lot of the health gurus died young. Yeah. Uh, mo almost all of them died before 70. There's like three pages of it. I was shocked because yeah, you just keep reading and reading know, and reading of examples. Uh, my, a couple of my favorite, well, favorite, this is a sad story, but a lot of people know of the Pritikin diet. Uh, Pritikin slashed his wrists while he was in, when he was in a hospital room uh, and died at 70 years old because he was dying of, of uh, blood cancer. Uh, Jerome Rodale, the founder of Prevention Magazine, uh, boasted, he was, he was 70 years old, boasted that he would live to 100 years old unless killed by accident. While he was being interviewed by Dick Cavett, he was on the set of Dick Cavett's set. And in fact, Dick Cavett said later, he says, he began to look funny. And so I looked, said to him, are we boring you, Mr. Rodale? Anyway, he died on the set of a heart attack. Uh, and he was boasting that he was going to live to 100 died on the set. I mean, and I've go through many, many others of these, the founder of the South Beach diet, on and on and on. Uh, um, it's not, folks, it's not going to work for you. It's just yeah. not. You're not going to make it. Trust Jesus to give you eternal life. That's the only, there's your There's your hope. Absolutely, right? And it's, yeah, if, if that's the, and I think that's a good point. If, if that's your hope, I'm going to exercise and do this so that I can live longer. It, it's not a guarantee. Right? It's not a guarantee of what's going to happen. Anything can happen. Accidents happen all the day. And you gave a lot of examples rather than I love riding my bike and I have the goal to do certain rides and I got to train to get there. And this is fun. Uh, and I get a, I love spending time when my wife goes riding with me and it's the two of us that get to go. Now, along with the literal immortality project, and I just want to spend just a moment talking about this um, because I think it's so popular, especially with younger people. There's so many TV shows. Black Mirror has this as well as many other movies that talk about this idea of ups being able able to upload our consciousness uh, and live eternally in that way. Now, I had uh, Dr. Fuzz Rana from Reasons to Believe come on talking about his book, Humans 2.0 and Transhumanism, uh, a while back, and this idea of you know transhumans and living forever. But you know, what do you think about this idea that 
where does this come from? Or does this maybe is this, you know, people have this idea that we'll one day be able to upload our consciousness into a computer and live eternally that way. I call it wishful thinking. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's not, folks, I'm sorry, it's not going to happen. Computers are not going to become conscious. I go through a lot of discussion on this. One, David Chalmers, I think, uh, neuroscientist David Chalmers, not a Christian, he says straight out, he says, and he believes that one day uh, people will be able to upload their consciousness. But in the meantime, he says, we don't even know what consciousness is. We don't know how humans got consciousness, much less how machines could get consciousness. We have no no idea. But he's this guy saying this, though, is an advocate for it. But he says, we have no no idea at all. See, you and I, Ryan, we've, we've already got this figured out. And what I mean by that is we don't believe that humans are just material stuff. If I believed in materialism, I probably would think that that one day maybe a machine or something could become conscious. Because if somehow we became conscious, how did we become conscious? If we became conscious by accident, well, maybe one day we could engineer a machine to do it. But if you believe, as you and I do, that we have souls— for crying out loud, that that the soul is immaterial. They're never they're never going to download anything into a computer. It's just simply not going to happen. They're not going to download their consciousness into a computer. Never, ever, ever, because consciousness is immaterial. Anyway, so that's just that's never going to happen. It's just wishful thinking. Yeah, absolutely. But it is. I mean, it's a huge worldview thing, right? And and, that, well, and I love it, how you said that. It's based on this worldview. Yeah, it might be possible if I'm purely materialistic, and consciousness can come from that. Then surely it should be able to come from something else materialistic. And so, it, yeah, it makes sense to me. Absolutely. Like I say, if I were a nat- if I were a naturalist, I would probably go well. <laughs> Somehow we got consciousness. Well, you know, we can engineer a computer to have it or something. Yeah. I mean, it would make sense. But being that I don't think, but right now, uh, they aren't even remotely close uh, to, you know, I mean, our neurons, we have a thousand billion connections in our brain. Uh, You're, I mean, we don't know how to, how to replicate a brain. We're never, we're not even close to that. Yeah. So there's a worm called C. elegans, uh, and it's got 302 neurons, and they've mapped the connectivity out on all of them. And the guy that did said, you know, he says, we're no, we couldn't replicate its brain just because we've mapped its neurons. Yeah. I mean, that, and, and think about having, you know, I mean, in fact, I said thousand billion. I think the number is thousand trillion you know, connections. You're not, it, it, anyway, it's not going to happen. Well, yeah. So you share this a little bit about this in your book, and I know you've talked to me about this uh, separately, but <clears throat> this idea of, we think that artificial intelligence is so smart, but you give some examples uh, of how really artificial intelligence is almost dumber than children. That's right. right? So can you share in a fact, couple of those things? Y- yes. You know, I, I, in fact, Eagleton, it's always good when you, as you know, when you can find a quote from somebody and that's, that's not, a Christian who's making your point, and David Eagleton, who's a, a neuroscientist at Stanford University, a professor of neuroscience at Stanford University, and uh, he's the cons- the technical consultant to Westworld. He says we're not even. He says we're not even close to getting anything close to doing what a three year old can do. He says a three year old can empty a dishwasher, manipulate his parents, uh, and navigate a room full of furniture easily. We're not even close to that. You know, there's a lot of things people don't understand. Really, this can sound funny. Computers are very fast at calculating data, and I give a lot of examples, uh, but I give a lot of counterexamples. They're fast at calculating data, but there's a lot of things that computers will never understand. For instance, if you said, and I give this example, Juliet is the sun, uh, that doesn't, a computer wouldn't understand that at all because the well-known properties of the sun are 93 million miles from Earth and largely gaseous. I mean, and so you're going to say, so Juliet is gaseous and 93 million miles from Earth? Computer doesn't understand that. If you said Sally is a block of ice, every if I said to you, you know, like somebody that we knew, I said, They're a, that person's a block of ice, you'd immediately know what I meant. Uh, but a computer wouldn't understand what a square, what a square, cold square thing was. I mean, how is, how is Sally like a, some, a cold cube? How is, uh, that doesn't make sense. And there's this countless things like that that computers just are never, ever going to understand uh, unless you program every single detail into everything. For instance, another one is 
uh, I'll make it more current. Uh, Donald Trump is in Washington, D.C. Where's Donald Trump's left foot? A computer doesn't know that. It wouldn't know where his left foot was unless you programmed it so that everywhere that Donald Trump goes, his left and right foot and left and right hand go with him. Because, <laughs> see, you, they don't. Anyway, so the, this is just wishful, desperate thinking, because, of course, they're trying to. There's a lot of people like Kurzweil uh, who's desperately hopeful that that the singularity is going to occur and he's going to be able to live forever because science is going to figure out how to upload his brain. But. That's uh, not going to happen. Yeah. Now, you, you know, you've also given examples of, you know, when someone's driving and just the very <sighs> nonverbal cues that we can give each other. You stop, oh, at yes. a, you stop at a stop sign and someone just goes, you know, like just as small as oh, that, yes. you know, okay, it's my turn to go. And they're giving I, you I mean, I'll, you know, I was in the Costco parking lot not long ago and uh, some there was a pedestrian. I was driving. There was a pedestrian and our eyes met and he could tell by the fact that I was looking at him and was coming to a stop that I was going to stop. Uh, that I, because my eyes met his eyes, he knew, he, we knew, I see you, you see me, I'm aware of your presence and I'm now going to stop. <laughs> and I mean, it's not, anyway, yeah, I mean, there's just so many things like that. Yeah, and that's the same thing that happens every time I ride my bicycle is every time I approach an intersection yeah. and a car is coming, I look straight for the eyes. And the moment I see that we've made eye contact, right. They're stopping and I'm good to go. Uh, those are things that, you know, self-driving car, you have no idea if that car is stopping or not. Now, no, you don't. Now, switching back over to kind of these immortality projects. So you, <clears throat> I, I, there's a fascinating discovery that you made is when talking about these different immortality projects you have, you, you show in your book and you've commented on how even atheists admit something unique when it comes to the Christian immortality project. What is that that even atheists are admitting? It is... Well, one of the things that was actually a very pleasant surprise uh, was to find that a lot of atheists agree that there's no better there's no better answer there's no better solution to the to death than Christianity. Uh, it, it, Luke Ferry, the guy I mentioned, the friend, Paris philosopher I mentioned earlier, he says it turns out that Christianity is stronger than death. Uh, Sam Harris was lecturing, and I quote him, Sam Harris was lecturing to 4,000 atheists in Australia, and he says, there's no better story you can tell a child uh, than, you know, your, or uh, anyone, uh, that the person that you've just lost is now in heaven and we're going to see them again. Sam Harris says, there's no better story than that. Of course, Sam Harris says, I don't believe in it. Mm -hmm. But I was just really so pleasantly surprised to see these atheists admit that the best the best way to deal with death is to become a Christian. Of course, like I said one more time, they don't they don't think Christianity is true. But in fact, uh, Fetty said he said, but if it were true, I'd be a taker. Hmm. And uh, so anyway, it's just, it's amazing to me in that regard. Absolutely. So, I mean, there might be even some kind of apologetic uh, value in that of appealing to what we know deep down inside of us and what actually does appeal to those emotions and uh, and kind of that argument from desire and these desires that we have. Now, kind of based on that, uh, the first one of the first questions that came in uh, from Cyril here is, uh, if a person believes in Christ, if that belief in Christ <clears throat> is driven out of the fear of death, do they still go to heaven? Well, uh, I mean... I, I, that's very that's complex. It, it depends on what they believe about Christ. But if it's just to save me from death, uh, I would hope that they would believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and that he was raised from the dead and uh, uh, and so on, and that they're going to have eternal life in him. And yeah, I would say if they believed in this, that they're going to be in heaven. Let me just say, this is kind of reminds me of people say, well, you shouldn't threaten, you shouldn't scare people uh, into salvation by telling them about hell. I came to have, I came to Jesus because Billy Graham was preaching on heaven and hell, and when he was done, I thought I'm going to go to hell, uh, and so I became a Christian that day because I didn't want to go to hell. And so, yeah, I think <laughs> I think that yeah, you'll be you can certainly be saved, uh, you know, as long as you believe the total gospel. Absolutely, sure. Yeah. You know, and that even reminds me, yesterday on my ride, I was listening to podcasts as I do always when I'm writing, and uh, Sean McDowell interviewed. Same-sex attracted. I don't know how he how he describes himself, but uh, he was talking about how he, while he was living uh, in uh, with you know in homosexual relationships and everything, he's in Hollywood. He sees that there's some Christians behind him with Bibles, and he turns around and starts to engage them. And what about an hour or so after talking with them, he he made the comment. Um, so, what, what does your church say about homosexuality? And they said, well, we believe that homosexuality is a sin. And rather than him getting angry and upset, he said at that moment it hit him, and he goes. 
what if this is true? What if there is this God that actually does wow. exist and what I'm doing and then what I've, <clears throat> what I have surrounded my life with and, and revolved my life around is actually sinful. And that was a huge turning point of, you know, so again, it's not scaring people, but sometimes speaking the truth uh, can have a huge impact on them. Jesus was not embarrassed about talking about hell. Uh, he, he talked about hell a lot and he didn't go, well, you know, and they will go away to punishment. Uh, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't do, <laughs> he didn't do that. He wasn't embarrassed about it. Uh, if you don't come to Jesus, you're going to die in your sins and you're going to go to hell forever, like it or not. But the way you can respond to that is you can ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins and get saved. Yeah. And then you can live forever. Yeah. Absolutely. So here's another question that comes in, uh, maybe bringing up some objections. And uh, True Counterphobia says, I have seen videos of robots that operate like an army soldier and it will cease fire towards certain people. I ca it can also balance itself and get itself off the ground. How do you deal with those objections that these are maybe intelligent? I don't know. Well, sure. They, ha they possess a certain kind of intelligence. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, they can fire a machine gun, uh, but that's, you know, they that's far, far away from being able to, like I say, manipulate your parents when you're only three years old uh, and, and do a colossal amount of other things. Uh, computers obviously have a great technical ability to do exactly what they were programmed to do. Uh, and so you can certainly program a computer to recognize this is an enemy, and you can program a computer to recognize this, this uniform shows he's on our side. That's not a problem, yeah. but he's but the computer's not thinking on its own. It's not freewheeling. It ha doesn't have free will. It's only doing what it is programmed to do. It's interesting that we're having this, you know, this conversation. One of my closest friends' son uh, is at Stanford University, and he's been hired by Toyota to work on self-driving cars, and basically not only Toyota, but but Uber and just about everybody else has given up on it, at least for now, self-driving cars, because there's too many things that happen that you simply can't program the car to realize. There's things that happen all the time. Like, and so anyway, but, but sure, you can program a computer uh, to carry out a lot of tasks a lot better than I can, certainly. But that's not the same thing as having, as Eagleton put it, this broad intelligence that, like I say, that knows that when Trump is, see, because I, again, I'll just go back to the Trump analogy. <laughs> a computer doesn't know that if Trump is in Washington, D.C., that Trump's left leg is in Washington, D.C., unless you program it to know that. And so it's it's not learning and picking up this kind of information. That's never going to happen. Yeah, that's good. So kind of switching back. So we, we talked at the beginning then. Uh, so there's these uh, literal immortality projects of diets and exercise and even uploading consciousness into robots that people are literally trying to live forever, become immortal. And then as we mentioned at the beginning, there's also sim uh, symbolic immortality projects, living through kids, becoming a celebrity, getting your name on a building, writing a book, uh, whatever that may be. Um, what would you say is wrong with these symbolic immortality projects? Well, first of all, they be, well, the biggest thing, one of the biggest things, of course, is they become idolatrous. Hmm. Uh, you know, becomes your way of living, of having some sense of salvation without God. Uh, secondly, they're often a colossal waste of time. Uh, you know, there are some good symbolic immortality projects, uh, like, you know, trying to, you know, I mean, well, you know, either side would see it. One side says uh, abortion should be legal, and the other side that that would be a bad symbolic immortality project. The other side says it should be wrong. That'd be a good that'd be a good project, not a good immortality project. Uh, but they become idolatrous. Uh, also, a lot of them are just a colossal waste of time. A lot of them are just look at me. I need attention. Uh, they use the term now when it comes to, for instance, when it comes to global warming. And I'm not getting into the merits of global warming. That's not my point. Uh, there are, but a lot of people, it's virtue signaling. I want you to know what a wonderful person I am, that I'm working to save the planet for our children. Do you really care so desperately about generations from now, children that you're never going to meet really? Or is this virtue signaling? Hmm. Is this trying to say, you know, look at me, I'm really wonderful and impact your culture. There, I mentioned in the book, the Guinness Book of World Records. What do you think that is? Those are immortality projects. I'll tell you another one. Uh, shooting a bunch of people, uh, 
almost every one of them, in fact, to date, every single mass shooting I'm aware of, uh, it, people, the, the shooters beforehand said, now everyone's going to know who I am. Uh, the the, the uh, Columbine shooters did a video of themselves before they did, shot up Columbine saying, asking the question, who's going to make the movie on our lives? Will it be Spielberg or Tarantino? I mean, uh, this is another way. Uh, the guy that shot John Lennon said, I did it to steal his fame. Mm. So people are doing all kinds of things so that they just get recognized. Bizarre tattoos, weird piercings, have your tongue split so it looks like a serpent. This one guy uh, grew, didn't cut his fingernails on his left hand since 1952 makes his left hand useless for anything but in the guinness book of world records there he is and this one person said well his his diligence in doing that is paid off it's paid off not cutting your fingernails since 1952 is it paid off see this is the desperation of this um and also if your children are your symbolic uh immortality project it's other your children need to beat other people's children in everything they can possibly beat them in so your immortality reigns over their immortality i mean it becomes incredible i mean what nation you know the whole third reich was about symbolic immortality and they called it the ten thousand year reich anyway that so it becomes incredibly not just idolatrous but selfish and often very often destructive uh and destructive to others yeah. So you, you kind of switch into that in your book where you talk about the destruction that it causes. Um, how how do these false secular immortality projects, how does it actually hurt people? Well, you know, it depends on which project you're 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 seeking to it to do with it right i mean because each project has a has a different uh works out differently one of them is uh, is people say well i want i want to be needed because if that's and that becomes their uh, symbolic immortality project i'm going to make my life so important in your life that you need me and as i quote this one person who says so that you'll revere me so that you'll dread my passing and i was as i was reading that i went yikes I don't want this person's help. I don't want this person to become that dominant in my life. I don't think anybody would, you know, I mean, codependent evermore. That's icky. Uh, so anyway, I, I mean, but it depends on the symbolic immortality project. Like I say, for a lot of people, it's doing something destructive. Uh, the, the Las Vegas shooter, people go, what, why would he do that? Well, the, the LA Times interviewed his brother and his brother said, well, he always wanted to be the best at everything. So surely he would want to have the highest body count. Hello? I mean, is this that mysterious? Really? I don't think it is. So do you think there's a connection uh, with that to kind of the idea that uh, you you have business CEOs or you even have professional athletes that at the point of retirement, uh, people sometimes go into depression they 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 don't know what to do oh, yeah. with because they their celebrity their 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 baseball career their their business was their immortality project and now they're out oh they don't know yes. what to do oh absolutely uh especially i you know a, a lot of people this is to me a fascinating statistic celebrities die 13 i think it's 13.8 years younger than the average population celebrities singing stars movie stars sports stars die 13 years younger than the average population now for men it's eight years younger than the population but for women female stars it's a whopping 22 and a half years wow. younger than the average population wow. and you know anybody that thinks about it for a minute understands that because actresses man an actress hits 40 she's gone uh i mean have you has anybody seen a film with cameron diaz in it lately no she's off the charts now uh and you know they say oh they decided to retire they haven't decided to retire the the producers have decided that they're just not young enough in fact anne hathaway said recently that she's being passed up for parts uh for for uh, by young for younger women are getting parts for women that for the, uh, the role i'm chewing this up for the role uh of someone in her age uh, this is just the way it goes. And once you lose your your fame, you lose your beauty. If you're famous for being beautiful, uh, then it's really hard on you. And you start. And so people start spiraling down into drugs and alcoholism and, and uh, you know, and, and on and on it goes. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I think that we can just look around us and see so many different responses and, and how when people lose that thing that they're living for, uh, you know, that who knows what we're going to do. The midlife crisis maybe too of like, what am I, what am I even doing, right? Well, yeah, midlife crisis. The midlife crisis is the fact that you've realized you're halfway to being dead. Hmm. Uh, and, and you go, wow, what, you know, what have I done with my, and you'll hear people say these words, what have I done with myself? Yeah. In other words, they haven't done enough to offset the fact that they know they're going to die. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, but you know, if I'm going to live forever, by the way, I, I tell this story, but it, when I used, was in my thirties and, and early, well, late, late twenties and early thirties, I worked for an insurance company and every birthday for anybody, there was RIP things all around and stuff. And, and, uh, they came up to me, they, and they do that for my birthday too. They'd have tombstones and RIP and everybody, you know, whatnot. And, and they come up, yeah, yeah, you're getting old, man. I go, yeah, I'm halfway. I was 38 once. I said, yeah, I'm 38. That's halfway to 76. I'm really halfway to dying. And I'd pause and said, but you know, uh, you can have eternal life in Jesus. And so I'm trusting Jesus. And one guy says, oh, it doesn't do any good to tease Clay on this. He, he always ruins it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, okay, whatever. I, I didn't ruin it for me. I yeah. made it for me, you know? Absolutely. So I want to make sure that we have time, plenty of time to talk about this. And with only about 14 minutes left, I better jump into it. So then what is, you've referenced a few times, um, you even say this in the beginning of your book, one of the reasons why... Christians fear uh, death is that they do not have a robust or even a correct view of the resurrection of Jesus. And if you don't believe right. confidently that Jesus rose from the dead, how can you believe confidently right. that you're going to rise from the dead? But then also you talk about this robust view of heaven. And so what then is the Christian response to the fear of death? Well, you know, I mean, we really do need to think through death uh, and, and eternity much more than we do. In First Peter 1, I think it's verse 13, Peter says, uh, be self-controlled, be sober-minded, and be sober-minded so that you can set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Well, set, so you can set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. So where should you have your hope? Well, you should have your hope set on the fact that you're going to live forever in Jesus. Uh, most people don't do that. Most people are living for here and now. Most people, in fact, uh, are are trying are pursuing the American dream, and which is I'm going to get married, have kids, see those kids go to good schools. Uh, they're going to get great jobs, get married, have kids, and I'm going to have so much money in my 401k that we're going to be able to travel the world and then come back and just join enjoy the kids on holidays. Uh, that's the American dream. That's not what Jesus has promised you. Jesus has promised to give you eternal life in Him, and we need to be sober-minded and set our hope fully on the grace to be given us when Jesus Christ is revealed. In Colossians chapter 3, I'm going to quote one more verse. Colossians, or four more verses, actually. Colossians 3 says, If you've been raised with Christ, seek those things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above and not on earthly things, for you have died and your life is hid with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. Do so you, you notice the theme there uh, that the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3:16, ends with shall not perish, but have eternal life. So fo let's focus on that. Let, because if you do, if that you make that your hope, your joys and sorrows won't go up and down like a roller coaster. And the reason they won't go up and down like a roller coaster is because you'll have your hope built on something you cannot lose. And so anyway, I just can't, you know, there's so much to this though, Ryan. And one of, one of the things, you know, and I talk about this in Why Does God Allow Evil, there's a lot of false information about heaven, that heaven is why we won't know each other, it's going to be boring, that we're all going to be, you know, I mean, sitting on clouds and playing harps and, you know, sporting flightless wings and singing nonstop. The Bible doesn't teach any of those things. Yeah. But, but see, then that makes us not want to go to heaven. Uh, as I, you know, I had a, a young woman come up, a, an undergrad come up to me, and she fought back tears as she confessed to me that she's afraid she didn't want to go to heaven. Yeah. And 
and I think that a lot of people, a lot of Christians, I'm afraid, are actually have that same thing. They're actually afraid they don't want to be in heaven, but that's because that's because uh, Satan has given out these talking points to his minions uh, that heaven is white. And if you read Revelation, if anything, heaven is jewel tone. But he's passed out these talking points to his minions, and uh, everybody's believed them, and as a result, heaven looks like a really terrible place to go. Yeah. So what would you say then is, uh, you know, because you talk in your book, and and I did a show, uh, man, uh, two, three months ago or so with uh, Gary Habermas on the evidence for the resurrection. How would you say that knowing uh, um, a defense or the arguments for that resurrection, being confident in the resurrection of Jesus actually does uh, help us uh, forget, uh, you know, not have this fear of death? I think it's gigantic. Uh, I think it's wonderful. Uh, and And, you know, I actually give my best argument in one chapter in the book for the resurrection before i get off into <clears throat> heaven and how we ought to seek it i give my one i give a one chapter here's my best argument that jesus really was raised from the dead because that's the hope folks if jesus wasn't raised from the dead christianity is a false religion we should be doing what the world is when it comes to fearing our fearing death and that is get the biggest big screen tv we can and drink our brains out uh, but if Jesus really was raised from the dead, then that is a sign to all of us that we can likewise live forever in Jesus. And and that's what, so yeah, the resurrection and so apologetics, I find apologetics to be deeply spiritual because it it, it affirms what we need to know most, and that is that Christianity is actually true, that it's not just a nice idea, but it's actually true. Uh, I actually had this kind of sad and a little embarrassing. I was teaching a Bible study to a guy that had heard me teach for like several years. This is literally like 1978. Uh, but he heard me teach and I gave an argument for the resurrection. He came up to me later and he says, so you think that this is really true? And I'm like, what? He says, no, you think Christianity is like, it's really true. And I'm like, what have you been thinking of? Mm. Anyway, the resurrection is, is confirms our hope. Jesus, Jesus' resurrection reveals to us that we can be resurrected too. And, and that's, that frees us from the fear of death and frees us from the dangers of eternal destruction. Yeah. I mean, it, it, that's what First Corinthians 15 is all about, and I just love that chapter of starting out of like, here's you know what's going on, and if, yeah. if Jesus did not rise, here is the consequences, and I think it's 15 verse 32 that says, you know, if the dead are not raised, then go eat and drink, for tomorrow you die. Uh, but then ending with this amazing proclamation mm. of, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You know, uh, the fear of death, you know, I can't remember exactly, but just this, the fact of the, that we know the fact that Jesus died and rose from the dead, uh, that we know how the story ends. That changes everything for us. Changes everything. Absolutely. You know, I mean, absolutely everything. I mean, I'm going to live forever and ever and ever and ever. And it's, you know, as I say in my book, and I think people are, can be a little shocked by this. I say, I don't fear the state of being dead. Uh, I don't, you know, I woke up one morning and it was like three in the morning and it's dark. And I was thinking about death and I was thinking, you know, I don't fear being dead. Uh, I, in fact, I thought about it as I put, as I put in the book, I don't fear it any more than I fear that I, they didn't bother me any more than thinking I need to turn on the sprinklers. Yeah. Uh, it's just, you know, it's just something that's going to happen to all of us, but we're going to transition smoothly into the next life. Yeah. And, uh, our consciousness will never cease. Yeah. Now, I know you've shared this on my show before, and you talk about it publicly, but my dad wrote in and asked, uh, and you've met him and talked with him as well. And, I have. And so he asked, you know, uh, how did your view of death and immortality change uh, with your cancer diagnosis in the past? You know, I'm glad to tell you, that's that that's a great question. You know, uh, just to bring everybody up to speed, it was 16 years ago, last January, I lost part of my spine to bone cancer. Uh, and I just want to tell everybody, and, and like I say, you can believe this or not, and Ryan has heard me say that many times, and I hope as people get to know me, they'll go, I think he's telling the truth. Uh, I was not afraid of dying. I was not. When I, when I got cancer, I was not afraid of dying. Uh, I w now, let me be clear here, though. I was sad and, and afraid of leaving Jeannie alone. I was afraid of that. But that's not the same thing as being afraid of, be of death itself. I wasn't afraid of death itself. I wanted to be there to protect her, and I wanted to be there to help her. But uh, even 16 years ago, I was not afraid of the state of being dead. And, and I think, by the way, a lot of Christians, you need to make sure you're not in love with this present world. 
and you need to make sure you're keeping a clear conscience so you're not afraid of seeing the Father, uh, but and then focus on heaven, and you don't have to be afraid of death either. But so anyway, uh, the cancer diagnosis didn't change my—it didn't really affect me at all when it came to the thought that I would be dead. Like I say, it affected me greatly, the thought of leaving my wife, and I think that's a very legitimate—you know, I mean, we want to take care of our loved ones. There's a, That's understandable, and I, I certainly wanted to be there to take care of her, and I'm thankful that the Lord gave me the opportunity. Yeah. And I love the story and I'd love for you to share it too of, of what you did when you got the phone call uh, oh. with the cancer diagnosis. Yeah. When they called up and, you know, I had decided, you know, with Job, the only thing that Job had to do to, to humiliate Satan in the heavenly realms was to continue to honor God, no matter what Satan did to him. And so when I got the cancer diagnosis, I went in and, and Jeannie would listened on the other line and we went in and I held her hands and tears were streaming down our faces. And I led us in a prayer of thanksgiving to God. And at that moment, I knew I defeated Satan in the heavenly realms. Then when my cancer was misdiagnosed as being incredibly severe, uh, where they said, we're not going to take it out. We'll just start you on chemo. If this is what you have. And, uh, uh, maybe we'll take it out if it shrinks the tumor. We, we got the misdiagnosis. We met in the hallway and we held hands. And with tears streaming down our faces, I led us in a prayer of thanksgiving to God. And I knew at that moment I defeated Satan in, in the heavenly realms. Yeah. Uh, because your finest hour is when your life falls apart and the whole world is watching you and you say, I still honor God. That's your finest hour. Yeah. And you don't. And, and anyway, but focus, we need to focus on heaven. If I didn't have a robust view of eternal life in Jesus, which I did even 60, did have of that even 16 years ago, I would have been very afraid of dying. Yeah. But that wasn't one of the things that even entered into my thought process. Yeah, that's so good. Now, there are a couple kind of random off-topic questions, uh, a little yeah. bit off-topic that came in I'd love to get to. But before we kind of finish up discussing your book, uh, Immortal, you know, how the fear of death drives us and what we can do about it, what would kind of be your closing words of encouragement to those listening on, on seeking out this kind of true immortality project? Well, uh, you know, I've, I've just done a couple of blogs on the subject. One, don't love the world. First thing is do not be in love with this world, because if you love this world, you will not. It says in 1 John 2, the love of the Father will not be in you. So do not be in love with this present world. Don't do it. Uh, the second thing is, as I said, uh, have a clear conscience before Jesus, because if you're sitting there going, you know, the Lord really, I think the Lord's mad at me at some stuff. I'm, I'm a Christian, but he's, I'm not walking with him as I should be. You need to get that fixed because you're not going to be able to come to Jesus in peace if you're going, oh, man, he, you know, I mean, it, uh, if, you, if you're a parent, you have a defiant child. Does that defiant child want to be in your presence? Not really. Uh, and so I think you can be a sincere Christian, but sometimes just get off into sin. And so I think we need to be careful of that. But the biggest thing is, uh, and I, you know, my two books, Why Does God Allow Evil? The last three chapters of my book is on heaven, uh, and the last two chapters of my book, Immortal, are on heaven, to try to set the record straight and give us something that we can really enjoy. Uh, so we need to we need to change our minds. I encourage everybody to memorize Colossians 3, 1 through 4, uh, and, uh, you know, about seek those things that are above, and then recite those in your mind and keep them going. I think that's, I know that's what we need to do. We yeah. need to be focused on heaven so that we think it's going to be a great place to go. Absolutely. That is so huge and so very important. All right. So we have about oh two minutes. Let's see if I can get through a couple of these here in two minutes. Uh, Michael wrote in here and he said, uh, let's see if I can put this at the bottom. Oh, it's not shrinking. Let me just switch our windows then. I tried to do it differently. Um, he wrote in right here and he said, okay, hypothetical, if we could exchange our thoughts without verbal communication, uh, would that indicate that our consciousness is material or further indicate that it's immaterial? So do you, have you had any thoughts on on that? Well, that's a weird question. All I can say is if we could exchange our thoughts without being hooked up by wires or anything, I would think that that would tell us that our that we're immaterial. Our consciousnesses are immaterial. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, without those wires. Um, all right. So true counterphobia put in another question uh, on why has it become so important in modern society to separate moral from natural good and evil? I find the book of Genesis makes no distinction there. Should we bring these back together? Well, all all natural evil is a result of moral evil. So there's there is a definite relationship. All natural evil is a result of moral evil. Uh, but we 
tend to call moral evil suffering, you know, I mean, uh, cancer and uh, heart disease and things like that. But those are all the result of the fact that Adam and, well, Adam and Eve are first parents sin, and then we're committing sins. Unfortunately, when it comes to this virus, apparently in China, it's, it's now clear that they knew about this long before and didn't warn anybody. There is a moral evil that's brought on natural evil. And and this can be multiplied and multiplied and multiplied by how many people are, are enabling or causing natural evils uh by because they're not they're not people of integrity yeah all right so we have 20 seconds can i ask one more sure there's one last question that came in and uh, uh mariana said uh or marina said um what do you think about individuals who use hell as an argument against free will I don't think very good. I mean, because you can, I think honestly, there's a lot of people. In fact, I quote them in my book, Why God, Why God Allows Evil. Why does God allow evil? I quote all these people going, you can send me to hell if you want. I'll just, one, Ernest Henley Thomas, who wrote in his poem Invictus, he says, it matters not how straight the gate or charged with punishments the scroll. I'm the captain of my fate and I'm the master of my soul. See, he's saying, you can send me to hell if you want, but I'm going to do my own thing. So I don't think that the fact that you have a choice and a lot of people, Frank Sinatra's life song, I did it my way. You have a choice. I don't think it counts against free will at all. It just shows you how stubborn people are, that they're locked in their own self-worship, that they cannot worship God. Yeah. Wow, so good. Well, Dr. Jones, I have loved just uh, the time I spent in three of your classes at Biola and then just the way that you have mentored and, and just spent time and just learning from you. I love this new book that you have come out with. Everybody, you got to go you. check this out. It is so good and so thoughtful in the way that you've approached this topic, as well as your other book on why God allows evil. Uh, so thank you so much for coming on the show and taking this time to discuss this with us. Thank you, Ryan. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Absolutely. And for those of you watching again, uh, thank you so much for watching. There's a lot of interviews coming up. And so I just encourage you to go over and connect on the social media to, con to subscribe so you don't miss the interviews coming up next week and further. And for the moment, I'm blanking on what those are. So you have to check it out there. And then as well on Instagram, I promote and uh, everything that's happening there. So guys, thank you so much for watching. I pray that you have a blessed rest of your day, a blessed week, that you stay safe and that you continue to serve and honor and love God and all that you do. Thank you so much. Have a good rest of your day. I just won't hesitate to follow.